You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has led the podcasting space for the pharmacy industry. This network of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians leads the podcasting charts with more than 2 million downloads, 40 different stations, and new episodes every week. The Pharmacy Podcast Network is the number one podcast for the pharmacy professional. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all your favorite podcast players. Join the Pharmacy Podcast Nation today. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. My name is Jeff Wall. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University and internal medicine clinical pharmacist at Iowa Methodist Medical Center uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. So uh, another week and uh, another slog through the uh, pandemic. But as I've said in my last couple of talks, um, I'm trying to, to balance you know, uh, the steady diet of all COVID information. I think all of us are getting on, on a daily basis with some stuff that doesn't have to do with, with, with that virus. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing here today, talking a little bit about diabetic ketoacidosis and some new data looking at uh, the SGLT2 drugs uh, that we are using more and more now and their risk for DKA and, and basically just how to treat DKA. Uh, before I get started, though, please uh, appreciate people listening. If you like the podcast, please like us and, and comment on us and review us at uh, anywhere you get your podcast because that definitely gets the word out. And we really appreciate it. Also, uh, uh, those those of you who are using us for CE uh, through CE Impact, uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, those who aren't, again, uh, kind of a plea for me to, to think about maybe uh, signing up for uh, the uh, some of the CE programs at CE Impact. They're great programs. Uh, you get CE just for listening to me and answering a question on the website and, and get a little CE. I can't really think of an easier way to get uh, continuing education uh, than than you know listening to me on the way to work and and uh, probably tuning me out. Though I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and then answering the question, uh, the CE question, when 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 you get on the on the site, it's uh, affordable, it's easy to do, and uh, and uh, it allows us to kind of keep the lights on around here and, and keep doing this podcast. So again, please uh, like us, review us, and and uh, sign up for that CE. So let's get right to talking about uh, um, uh, SGL2 drugs and, and DKA. So we know the SGL2 drugs uh, were originally uh, FDA approved for type 2 diabetes, and uh, they work uniquely among all the the these. Uh, uh, diabetes drugs and that they increase glucose excretion and so uh, that you know that that was a unique mechanism and they also have some weight loss associated with them and they improve metabolic uh, uh, syndrome uh, um, uh, parameters and things along those lines so you know again you know even in diabetes there was some evidence suggesting these drugs were pretty well but then the floodgates have kind of opened for these drugs in other areas we now know that that uh, on the whole these drugs are particularly beneficial in diabetic patients with coronary disease. We know they decrease the risk of, of, of coronary events as well as all-cause mortality, which is about the hardest outcome you can get. Uh, we know that they are now nephroprotective uh, and, and probably on a par with ACE inhibitors and their ability to protect diabetics from developing uh, chronic kidney disease for because of their diabetes. And uh, more recently, uh, they seem to have a benefit in heart failure patients even if they don't have diabetes. So uh, they say that, uh, that uh, the STL2 drugs are now going to be used by you know a wide variety of, of different patient populations and and that's good because again I think there's good data showing they benefit um, they may be the sta 
statins of the 21st century, but uh, they do have some side effects that I think pharmacists need to be aware of. And one of them is this is this issue of euglycemic DKA. And this is not a new phenomenon. This has been reported from all of these drugs. And I got to admit, when I first started reading about these medications, I kind of said, you know, uh, you, you know, euglycemic DKA, that doesn't even that doesn't even make any sense. You know, what, what is that exactly? Um, and as I've read, you know, it, the, the theory, of course, is that since these drugs um, increase uh, uh, glucosuria, the, they, they increase your ability, your ability to excrete um, um, uh, to excrete glucose, that that basically um, uh, tricks the body into thinking they may have they may have DKA, and so basically it triggers a, a ketosis and then leads to the acidosis that goes along with this. So again, kind of surprising. Um, um, and I when I first read it, I kind of thought, no, oh, I'll never see that. Well, I have seen it. I've seen it uh, now at least three or four times in my ICU, and 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 very kind of surprised about that. So uh, you know, it, it is something that I think is pretty rare, but I, uh, it's something I think we all need to be aware of as pharmacists and as clinicians. So, uh, And that's kind of where this paper came uh, out. Uh, we had a paper that just came out a couple of uh, days ago from uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine, a large database study uh, that took a look at uh, the risk of, of DKA in, in the real world in patients and SGL2 inhibitors. And the good, and, 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 and the good news about this paper is that you know uh, it, it didn't show an, an incredible increase, but it was uh, triple the DKA risk of patients who are not the diabetics who are not on this medication. So again, you know, it, it was uh, kind of an eye opener. I think a little higher percentage than people thought, but it, it, it is it's worth discussing. So again, uh, this paper was uh, published from uh, Canadian databases. Again, you know, when you're, it's always lucky when 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 you uh, have these huge databases of patients, you can you can pull these studies out out of, out of. And what they did was they took a look at at the incident risk of of, di of uh, ketoacidosis in in type two diabetics, and they compared a large uh, database of patients who were receiving SGL2 drugs compared to those who were receiving DPP4 inhibitors, which um, that was their controls. And they, of course, those, those that drug has not been shown to increase the risk of DKA. And so, you know, I think that was a, a pretty a pretty good way way to do that. Um, and so, uh, what they found in the study in, 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 is that uh, over a one-year follow-up, they had 521 patients in this whole database who were receiving SGL2 drugs or hospitalized uh, uh, for DKA. So, the overall incidence rate of just kind of all Comers in this database was about 1.41 per thousand patient years. Unfortunately, the risk of 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 uh, when they broke it down by drug, the risk for the SGL2 drugs was twice that. It was 2.01 per thousand patient years. And when they looked at their control, the DPP4 inhibitors, it was actually only 0.75 per 100 patient years. And so the hazard ratio was 2.85. And they def definitely found an, a, 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 a statistical association with developing this euglycemic DKA for patients on. SGL2 drugs. There was some differences between the individual uh, drugs in the class. It seemed to be highest with canagaflozin at 3.58 hazard ratio and lowest for tobagaflozin uh, for 1.86. They were all statistically significant, though. It may just be that that uh, canagaflozin was the first drug out, or perhaps in Canada it's used more frequently than the others, and that might explain some of that difference. But this, uh, the bottom line was they all had a statistically significant increased risk of developing DKA, and the stratification was was pretty much the same, uh, even when they accounted for age, 
gender and uh, uh, whether they just started it in that last year or they can be been on it for the entire time. Again, it's it's it, we we really don't know you know it, the exact cause. Again, it's 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 this thought that that patients who pee out a lot of of, of uh, glucose just triggers the body into a ketosis. Um, there, I know there are some um, um, uh, endocrinologists who feel that 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 this is a, a concerning enough that you, they use these drugs uh, with some uh, caution in type two diabetics uh, who are taking insulin or patients who've had type two diabetes for years and years and may essentially have you know almost type one diabetes because basically they've exhausted their their pancreas and their beta cells. I don't not sure there's a lot of data to support that. I've just heard a couple of, uh, of endocrinologists kind of comment on that. I would say basically that as pharmacists, our job really is to just kind of be aware of the, of the possibility of this. Again, the overall risk is really low. Again, two per thousand patient years. So again, not you know not a very common side effect, but it can be serious. It can even be life threatening. And so I think it's something that pharmacists need to be aware of. And I think that 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 you know we we need to to, to just keep an eye out for it. And like I said, I can say from personal experience, I've seen it where we've had patients admitted to my ICU with pretty classic DKA. You know you know profound metabolic acidosis, you know, dehydration, mental status changes, all that other stuff. And their sugars are 160, 150, you know, and, and it's just, it's, 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 it's very interesting to, to note there. So, uh, so, you know, thinking about, about that, uh, you know, what do we tell patients that certainly if they start to feel like, like, you know, they're, they're becoming, they're peeing way more than they usually do, that, uh, they're starting to have mental status changes that, uh, you know, their blood sugars are, are, are fluctuating things along those lines. I think they do need to contact their healthcare provider about that um, and see about what, what they can do about it. If you're a pharmacist, who works in an inpatient setting who has one of these patients and you have a patient who comes in with not too high blood sugars but but you know has a pretty significant anion gap metabolic acidosis i think that's something that you have to you know point out because again i think most prescribers are aware of this adverse effect but they may not you know they may think it's so rare that it's something they're never going to see and like i said i can tell you that that even here in des moines i've seen it several times so i, th I think it's something that that most people will eventually see especially if they work in in emergency rooms or icu so if that were to happen, how do you treat these patients? Do you treat them any different than you would treat, say, a type 1 diabetic who uh, went into, in, into ketoacidosis? The answer is no. The, the treatment is essentially the same because uh, even though they don't have sky-high uh, insulin, remember that, that you know, the, the point of insulin in DKA is not necessarily to get their blood sugars under control. It's to basically close uh, the, the, the anion gap, right? Is, and, and, and that's something I think we tend to forget about DKA is, is, is that the prime, one of the primary uh, um, um, outcomes of treatment of, of ketoacidosis is not necessarily to control the blood sugars. I mean, yes, we do do that, but it's actually to resolve the acidemia and ketonemia. We, that's what we want to get rid of. And so uh, you do that by giving people insulin and whether it's intensive intravenous insulin or even just frequent subcutaneous insulin, that is how you're going to treat DKA no matter you know what the cause. So if someone did have euglycemic DKA, you'd want to stop the drug, obviously, admit them to the hospital and, and um, um, uh, go ahead and, and, and treat them like you would any other DKA patient. So I think it's not a bad idea then to kind of, you know, talk a little bit about how you do that. And, and uh, certainly it's, it's, a, it's a common enough issue for inpatient pharmacists that I think we see it quite a bit. And so just kind of a quick review of, of the, the ADA guidelines, I think is an order. Um, the ADA guidelines haven't changed a lot. In fact, in the, in the last probably 10 years, there really hasn't been a ton of new information on, on, the, on the treatment of DKA. In fact, I'd say probably the biggest uh, 
controversy right now in treating EKA is do you need to to bolus patients with insulin when they first get there, or can you just start them on an intensive uh, uh, protocol, whether uh, intravenously or subcutaneously? Um, and so that's a to me that's a pretty minor issue in in the treatment of EKA. I'm I'm not sure any of my physicians would really care one way or the other. So, um, but so the ADA guidelines are, I think are still pretty good guidelines to base your treatment protocols off of, and certainly if you work in most hospitals, you've kind of got that up and running as it is. So, you know, remember that that you don't need sky high blood sugars even in type one diabetics to, to to get DKA, right? I mean, it all all that requires is is the the cells in the body now starting to to, to switch to living off off fat because they're not receiving uh, any sugar because they don't have any insulin to uptake the, the the glucose into the tissues, and so then they start living they start switching to uh, living off fat that leads to fat bodies being produced and lipolysis, and then of course key, uh, ketone bodies being formed and, and, and ketoacidosis. So that can happen at any blood sugar, you know, and even in type 1 diabetics above 200. So you don't have to have, you know, sky high blood sugars. They usually do have low serum bicarbonates, of course, and then either ketonuria or ketonemia. Most hospitals will measure like beta hydroxybutyrate levels. Um, and it is worth mentioning that that that, that is not 100% uh, sensitive or specific, that, that, that it does miss other types of, of uh, uh, ketones that the body forms. But it's, it's a pretty standard way. I think most hospitals approach it. Uh, uh, the other thing to th remember is that these patients will have artificially low sodiums, um, and, and that's because uh, when when your blood sugar gets really high, that that pushes serum sodium down. So you need to kind of correct uh, the low sodium for excess glucose. And the standard uh, uh, formula that everybody kind of uses is adding 1.6. Uh, to a patient's sodium for every 100 milligrams per deciliter, their uh, glucose is above normal. So, for example, if you had someone whose blood sugar was 300, you would add 3.2 to their serum sodium to correct for that. Goals of therapy, according to the ADA, is the first step is, is to figure out what the cause of the DKA is and try and resolve it. It is certainly true, and I've certainly seen many patients with DKA come in simply because they can't afford their insulin and stop taking it, or they just don't want to take their insulin, or they got sick, or whatever. Um, but, but don't assume that that's the only cause. You know, infection is a pretty common cause of DKA. Um, uh, myocardial infarction in older patients is a common cause of DKA. So you do want to figure out the cause of the DKA. And then, again, the, one of the biggest uh, uh, goals of therapy is to resolve acidemia and ketonemia, is, and then to normalize mental status, to correct hydration, correct electrolytes, and actually correcting blood glucose, if we read the guidelines, is actually the last goal. So even though it's the thing that gets them in trouble, the most important things are keeping the electrolytes electrolytes normal, making sure hydration status is normal, and then absolutely uh, correcting um the uh, anion gap metabolic acidosis. And I cannot tell you over over 20 years teaching residents and students how many times I've seen where somebody with DKA uh, gets admitted overnight, uh, their blood sugars are 400, they get started on an insulin drip, and uh, their blood sugars within two hours go down to 100, and they stop the insulin drip and think everything's terrific, except they haven't closed the gap, and the patient goes right back into DKA. So uh, the, the, the point of DKA, of course, is, 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 to, is to fix the acidemia. So how do you do that? These patients are, on the whole, almost always uh, uh, severely dehydrated and then they're very fluid down. And so, uh, um, and that's because as SGL2 
T2 drugs work, uh, when you have glucose in your urine, it makes you want to pee. So you just it acts as a diuretic. And so uh, giving these people fluids is, is, is the very, very first thing to think of. Usually you bolus with a liter of normal saline, and then you can basically give them uh, continuous infusions based on that corrected sodium. And that's why it's important to correct the sodium in these patients. Once their blood sugars drop below 250, you probably do want to add some substrate back in, into their IV fluids. So probably adding D5. So maybe you might do D5 and a half NS or D5 NS in those patients. Again, just to give them some substrate back. Uh, the next thing you think about is their potassium. Remember that that uh, acidosis pushes uh, um, um, potassium uh, uh, extracellularly, and then they then they pee all the the potassium away because of of the of the diuresis that goes on. So usually these patients are profoundly uh, a body potassium down, but it just really kind of depends on on the, the point that you catch them in in the process of DKA. Again, another common uh, uh, mistake I see residents make is that someone will come in with DKA and they'll check a serum potassium and it's, and it's six. And they're like, well, I know that's not real. I know these patients really have low potassium and they proceed to give them potassium. And you don't do that, right? So, I mean, yes, the potassium is high because you probably caught them in the early stages of DKA where the, the acidosis has pushed all the potassium extracellularly and they haven't had a chance to urinate it off yet. So what the guidelines say is that, you know, it, really if, if, you're, if your potassium is greater than, than 5.3, you actually uh, don't uh, check a serum potassium or I'm sorry, you don't uh, start uh, uh, or give potassium, you just monitor potassium more frequently. If it's below 3.3, you actually don't give insulin. And that's something else that I've seen uh, kind of mistakes made because, again, someone who has a potassium of 2.7, you start an insulin drip on them and remember that that's going to push potassium back into the cells and you can get an even more precipitous drop in their potassium. So if their potassium is below 3.3, you actually don't give insulin. You actually could just give uh, boluses of potassium. And then if their potassium is between 3.3 and, and, and 5.3, then you can go ahead and just go in and add extra potassium to the intravenous fluids that you're giving them. Um, and then you get to insulin. And um, most hospitals have some sort of protocol that the nurses aren't calling the prescriber every hour with the blood sugar asking them what to do. And so the, uh, the, the, in the United States, I'd say probably the standard of, of care is intravenous uh, uh, insulin. It's important to note that, that there are solid studies that show that subcutaneous insulin can be used as well. And that's something that we started to do at our hospital is, is for so-called mild DKA, we will go ahead and and and, and uh, uh, if they're not if they don't look critically ill, if their bicarb isn't too low, things like that, we'll try and manage them on the floor with with it with every two-hour uh, subcutaneous insulin, especially the new uh, insulin analogs like Lispro and and Aspart are absorbed very quickly and and can be used and again has been shown in, in clinical studies to do that. So whether you use IV or sub-Q insulin, though, the the key piece I think for for the pharmacist to keep in mind is well, what are my goals? How fast do I want to drop their their, their insulin. And remember that the goal is to try and get it to about 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter per hour. And so if somebody comes in with a blood sugar of 500 and you start them on an insulin drip and their uh, potassium goes to 200 an hour later, you're dropping them too fast. You need to back off on, on, on the dose. And you know sometimes uh, uh, people will say, well, yeah, but well, isn't that mean they're going to be in DKA longer? You don't want to be too uh, uh, quick to try and get them off insulin. And I've seen, again, I've seen that mistake made many, many times where it's like, well, we got to get this bed. 
you know, we got to free this bed up in the ICU. So if I really just push a lot of insulin in them, we can get this uh, taken care of. Again, it's going to take while a while for for the, for the acidemia to resolve, and and it just it's kind of tincture of time. Then there's not much more you can do about that. Um, so that's you know, so so the goal is to try and get them to 50 and 70, 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter per hour. If it's below that, you want to go up and get more aggressive on your insulin. If it's above that, you probably want to want to back off on 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 your insulin. Eventually, the the acidemia will resolve, hopefully, and at that point, you can go ahead and switch them to what their regular regimen is. Or if this is a new uh, diabetic, go ahead and, and and start them on insulin as you would start any other, any other new start uh, for insulin. Uh, you know, and again, there's a couple of ways to approach doing that. A lot of times, what I'll do in these patients is is take a look at their last six hour intravenous insulin requirements, multiply that by four, and then use that as my kind of base for for how much insulin I'm going to be giving them. Um, um, but remember that that you don't want to do any of that until they're euvolemic, their bicarb is normal, um, um, and and or they have negative ketones in their blood. That's the point that you switch them to their home insulin regimen. Um, the, uh, I'm occasionally asked about bicarb, uh, and the guidelines basically say that if your if your pH is 7.0 above, you don't need to give bicarb. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm a bit of a bicarb nihilist, I got to admit, and so I don't use a ton of bicarb because I don't think there's a lot of data showing it really helps unless your pH is is profoundly low, like below 6.9. So uh, again, the guidelines don't say to replete that. And if their phosphorus is low, and, and often their serum phosphorus is low, again, because they're, they're urinating in a lot of a way, unless, they're, unless it's life-threatening low, uh, below one millimole per deciliter, you usually don't need to re replete that as well. If you do replete it, just keep in mind that drug uh, or that electrolyte is uh, does hang on in patients with kidney disease. So if the patient's got acute kidney injury, you don't want to overshoot in those patients as, as you're dealing with that. So, so I mean, I think that's that that's kind of a, a general overview of how to approach DKA. It hasn't really changed in a lot of years, but I think the the, the key pieces I see that 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 uh, new uh, pr uh, um, uh, providers make is you know not, uh, stopping the insulin before the gap has been closed, uh, um, um, not or starting or not starting potassium appropriately or insulin appropriately based on the serum potassium, and then switching them over to to their subcutaneous regimen from home or a new regimen. That's if there's kind of mistakes made in the treatment process, that's kind of where I see it done. So, so that's kind of a, a wrap up of, 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 uh, of treatment of DKA. And as, as this paper says, we're probably going to see this a little bit more in patients with SGL2 drugs, especially as these drugs get used more and more for a lot of different indications. So something to kind of keep uh, on top of. So we'll wrap things up in a bit, uh, but first a word from CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So DKA, um, have I seen people uh, uh, do badly with DKA? I have indeed over the years, but it's been a long, long time. I think uh, uh, most clinicians are pretty good. and We've protocolized the treatment of, of DKA to the point where I think you know, outcomes are usually pretty decent with it. But um, I think pharmacists can play a big role in identifying patients who may have early DKA, uh, warning patients about what the signs of DKA is on an outpatient basis. Because again, type 2 diabetics may have never had 
DKA before. We don't tend to educate them as much as we do about type 1 diabetics. So getting them and letting them know about that and how to deal with that, having them have an action plan of how to deal with that if they suspect D, uh, DKA. Um, and uh, I think you know, uh, helping to educate uh, providers about the best way to treat DKA and, and trying to hew to the guidelines whenever we can. I think if we do that, I think that, that even though we're going to see more DKA with the SGL2 drugs, I think we can manage these patients appropriately and they'll really be none the worse for wear uh, if they have that. Um, uh, a final question that I've been asked a couple of times in these patients is, well, can I ever put them back on an SGL2 drug? I'm unaware of any data showing yes or no, so i got to be honest with you. I've been kind of a chicken and said no. I, I, you know, if, they've, if they've had uh, uglycemic DKA once to an SGL2 drug, I would be uh, very, very uh, reluctant uh, to, to start one again unless some data comes out suggesting that it's super-duper idiopathic and they're, they're no more likely to get it again than if they never got it in the first place. I probably would avoid that. So, so that does it for, for another episode of, of uh, Game Changers Clinical Conversations. Uh, again, thank you for listening. I uh, appreciate you guys uh, taking the time and, and, and listening to me blather on. Again, please, please, please go to CE Impact. Take a look at all their great CE uh, offerings and, and consider subscribing. This is Jeff Wall. I'll see you next week. And remember, until then, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care.